This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Glaucoma is a very common eye disease affecting more than 70 million people worldwide. It's a leading cause of blindness and accounts for over 12% of blindness around the world. While it tends to be more common in older individuals, it can occur in younger patients as well. There are a variety of types of glaucoma and also a variety of treatment options. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the various types of glaucoma, its treatment options, and what we should do as primary care providers to help our patients get a proper diagnosis and prevent the vision loss, which can be associated with glaucoma. Our guest today is Dr. Cheryl Kana, an ophthalmologist at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Cheryl, thank you for being here and, and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, as I mentioned, there are a variety of types of glaucoma, and I wonder if you could start by just reviewing the various types that we may see. So I think it's important to realize that glaucoma is a disease that can occur from birth all the way till someone passes on. So it's more common in the elderly, certainly, but it can occur at any age. There's many types of glaucoma. We can think of those types divided into four categories. That would be open angle glaucoma, angle closure glaucoma, secondary glaucomas, or congenital glaucomas. The most common type that we see and that internists see would be open angle glaucoma. And that's where the trabecular meshwork or the outflow system is just not working as well as it used to and the pressures elevated and not tolerated by the optic nerve. I've heard of normal tension glaucoma. Is, is this something different? So normal tension glaucoma is a specific type of opening of glaucoma. It's important to say that glaucoma can occur at any eye pressure. It's not a magic number where glaucoma occurs. It's thought that in general, a normal eye pressure is less than 22. We know that eye pressure fluctuates greatly during the day and through the night. Normal tension glaucoma is when someone develops optic nerve damage at pressures that are less than 22. Now, some people would say, well, it's hard to know what the pressure is throughout the entire day and night, and that is true. So there's some controversy regarding the diagnosis of normal tension glaucoma, whether it just represents intraocular pressure fluctuation or whether the pressure is low and the patient is just sensitive to lower intraocular pressures. We also know that normal tension glaucoma tends to be associated with people who have very low blood pressure, for example, or people who have um, connective tissue disease. So it can have other systemic associations. Well, we're going to talk more about how to diagnose glaucoma, but glaucoma is really more than just elevated eye pressures. There's more to it than that, isn't it? It is. You know, if we only diagnose glaucoma based on intraocular pressure, we would miss 40% of people with glaucoma. Really, it's important to say that glaucoma is an optic neuropathy. It's a disease of the optic nerve, the nerve that goes from the eye to the brain. And once that nerve is damaged, it causes irreversible loss. 
So when we are looking for glaucoma, we look at the appearance of the optic nerve, looking for characteristic changes. We look for thinning of the nerve layer that feeds into that main optic nerve called the retinal nerve fiber layer. And then once the nerve is damaged, it results in side vision or peripheral visual field loss. So we do a visual field and look for that peripheral visual field loss. So those are findings that you would see on your exam, and you have a lot more equipment and dilated eyes than we do. What might we as primary care providers suspect or recognize that this could represent glaucoma in our patients? I love the fact that you said glaucoma is very common. So just keeping it top of mind, realizing that this is the second leading cause of blindness in the world is important. So recommending a baseline eye exam in a patient over the age of 40 is paramount. Also recognizing that there's some risk factors for the development of glaucoma. You know, patients who are of specific ethnicities such as Asian patients or black patients or Hispanic patients are at a higher risk for glaucoma and also a higher risk for blindness. So realizing that patients who are on chronic steroids in any form are at a higher risk to develop glaucoma. You know, and then as I said before, elderly patients, you know, your risk of developing glaucoma really goes up exponentially as you age. If a patient is nearsighted, especially if they are highly nearsighted over minus eight diopters, their risk will go up exponentially of developing open angle glaucoma. And then anybody with a family history or elevated intraocular pressure, if they have that history, it's important to remind them to get those checks with their eye provider. Mm -hmm. Now, I have always been told on physical exam, doing the ophthalmologic exam, that if you see deep optic cups, that may be a sign of elevated pressure. Is, is that a reliable sign? It's wonderful. If you feel comfortable with direct ophthalmoscopy, then it's wonderful to look at the appearance of the optic nerve. And indeed, that is one of the parameters that we judge, looking at the cup-disc ratio, looking at the neural rim. I think a simple way to think of this, and this is what I say to my patients, is think of the optic nerve like a donut. And the neural rim is the good tissue, is what we want to maintain of the donut, okay? And the optic cup is the donut hole. So in glaucoma, that donut hole gets bigger and the good stuff of the donut gets thinner. So as you're saying, a deep cup or a larger donut hole is a concern if you would see that on direct exam. If you look at cup disc ratio, most people have a cup disc ratio of you know, less than 0.7. Once you see a cup disc ratio of greater than 0.7, that starts to become more suspicious. In addition, if you see asymmetry between the two nerves, between the two eyes of more than 0.2, that's also suspicious on examination. So really not a lot on physical exam that we're expected to recognize, but mostly be suspicious about family history and whether a patient has had a recent eye exam. That's, that's probably most important. Remember that there is a form of glaucoma. One of the four that I mentioned is acute angle closure glaucoma. So I think that internists should be aware of acute angle glaucoma and the fact that when the fluid of the eye which is made posteriorly, cannot reach the front of the eye, which is where that internal drain or trabecular meshwork is. The pressure can build up and people can develop eye pain. They can develop a headache, nausea, vomiting. And so 
those are some signs of acute angle closure glaucoma that can be missed because primary eye provider may think, oh, that's a migraine. Or, you know, I've had some people sent in thinking they had a heart attack with neck pain that was radiating down from their eye. So I think having acute angle closure glaucoma on your differential for headache, for eye pain, for nausea is important to keep in mind. It's also important to keep in mind that certain medications can result in acute angle closure glaucoma, things like topiramate, even things like NSAIDs or any sulfa derivatives can cause ciliary body swelling in the eye and cause angle closure glaucoma. Okay. So let's say you have a patient who has not been seen in ophthalmology for a long time and they develop glaucoma. What might they first recognize in terms of chronic open angle glaucoma? What might be the first symptoms that they notice? We hope they recognize nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So the best way to treat this disease is to catch it early because the loss that occurs is irreversible. Just having that baseline eye exam at age 40, or if you have a family history earlier yet, or if you're on chronic steroids, having a baseline exam. So early exam is really important. And I think that's the best thing. Patients in more moderate or severe stages will notice, you know, blind spots in their vision or a constricted peripheral visual field. But it tends to be a very silent disease unless you have the acute angle closure form, which can be painful when the intraocular pressure is over 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. I've had a few patients who are older who um, had loss of peripheral vision, but it occurred so slowly they weren't aware of it. But the way they recognized it was they almost ran over somebody who was crossing at the street and they did not see them in their peripheral vision off to the right. So, Yeah, it can be an issue with driving. And because we're all able to move our head and move our eyes, you know, we can compensate for a long time without recognizing this disease. Mm-hmm. This may not be a fair question to ask you, but when patients don't see an ophthalmologist and the most common area that they may go close to that is get glasses periodically and they get an exam by an optometrist, are they getting tested for glaucoma during those refraction visits? So, you know, we never know what exactly is being done at each eye exam. So we don't know if Patients are receiving only a refraction to check for glasses. Um, Some patients may have a screening exam for glaucoma and then will receive a referral to, you know, evaluate the patient further and provide treatment. So it depends what type of exam is being done. Well, let's talk a little bit about treatment. What are the various pharmacologic treatments? We'll start with that. So there's many patients who are started on topical eye drops for treatment of glaucoma. That's probably the majority of our patients. And there are multiple drug categories that we use. It's important to say that these drops are very concentrated and they penetrate the cornea, but they also go into the nasolacrimal system where they go into the nose and then they're swallowed. So they do have systemic side effects that primary providers really need to know about. The first category would be prostaglandins. They tend to have very few side effects, but it's the most common eye drop that you will see people on. One example would be uh, generic latanoprost, uh, which is just once a day. It can change the eye color from blue to brown in some patients. 
So that's a common side effect. But other than that, it has very few side effects. A second common topical medication would be CAIs or carbonic carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. As a primary doc, you probably know these as Diamox or Neptazane. You can use them for altitude sickness or other issues, but actually there's a topical form that we can use as well. They sting a little bit when they go in. People can get kind of a funny taste in their mouth. Uh, sometimes you can develop an allergic reaction or tingling in your hands and feet from these carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, and they decrease the production of fluid in the eye. The third common type would be alpha-2 agonists. The most common example would be bromonidine, and that's a relative of clonidine. So you can get things like hypertension or changes in blood pressure with that that you should be aware of. The most common side effect from the topical form that we see is a dermatitis or an allergic conjunctivitis, so a red eye, itchy eye. I have had some patients sent in where they think, Oh, I think they have a cellulitis, but actually it's a dermatitis just from their eye drop. Um, so that's something that you may see as a primary care doc. And then there's less used forms. There's pilocarpine that's been around since the 1800s. Once in a while we use that, that's a cholinergic. One of the newer drops that we have is something called a rock inhibitor. It increases outflow through that primary drain of the eye through the trabecular meshwork. And that's called natarsidil. It can give a little bit of redness or irritation as well. How do you decide when to start treatment? I've had a few patients who are labeled as glaucoma suspect, and it seems like some are on medication and some are not. Does that vary depending on the ophthalmologist as to when you start pharmacologic therapy? So as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of factors that we think about when we start treatment for glaucoma, and it's really a continuum from early to moderate to severe glaucoma. So we'll think about the patient's age. We'll think about their health status. We'll think about the risk versus benefits of starting treatment because all treatments have side effects. In general, if someone's a suspect, you know, maybe they have a suspicious appearance of their optic nerve, but they don't have convincing thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layer, peripheral visual field loss as of yet. So that may be someone that we simply see once a year with repeat testing, and they may be stable for years and years and not require any treatment. But as people go through time, we may see more thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layer, which tends to change first. And then as someone develops moderate glaucoma, we'll see not only thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layer on OCT, but we'll also see peripheral visual field loss and visual field testing. And so as we see people progress, we'll add more drops. We may offer lasers. And, you know, in a small percentage of people, we'll pursue ocular surgery for glaucoma to lower the eye pressure further. Okay. So following pharmacologic therapy... What's next on the ladder as we go up for treatment options? Really, it's important to think about laser as an option. Selective laser trabeculoplasty is what we perform here at the Mayo Clinic, very commonly for opening of glaucoma. And that can even be used as a first line. It's equally efficacious compared to a single pharmacologic agent and it may have less side effects. It tends to work for an average of two years when the effect wears off, it can be repeated as well, has very low risk profile. So you may see that we actually offer selective laser trabeculoplasty or laser for glaucoma as first line instead of a drop. But some people need 
multiple drops or laser and a drop. So it really is individualized according to the patient's needs. Okay. And then finally, surgery. So I'm a glaucoma subspecialist at Mayo Clinic. I'm one of three here. And um, I've been working in this department for 30 years. It's been a great pleasure and, and privilege. And I'm one of the people who performs glaucoma surgeries after completing a glaucoma fellowship. There's many different types of glaucoma surgery. And every year there's more types of glaucoma surgery. It's really an expanding field. It's very exciting. The least invasive glaucoma procedure that we have is something called MIGS or minimally invasive glaucoma procedure. And we do many types of MIGS here. And it's a nice option to try to augment the outflow of fluid from the eye. A few examples of this would be an eye stent, Kahook blade, Omni, Trab360, Zen. So these are some of the MIGs that uh, we perform, you know, Hydrus. There's been a lot of different MIGs over the years that we've used at Mayo Clinic. As a patient develops more severe glaucoma, we may have to offer them something like a trabeculectomy, which is an opening in the eye wall to drain the fluid and lower the pressure, or a glaucoma drainage device, which is a silicone tube, which allows the fluid to drain from the eye to a plate that's external to the eye. There's also external lasers that are different than selective laser trabeculoplasty. They're stronger, if you will, and they reduce the pressure more and they're performed in the operating room. So there's an external laser that's performed with a, a probe that's applied to the eye wall. Well, there's really been a lot of new treatment options, you know, both pharmacologic, laser therapy, surgery that have really been developed very recently, last decade or so. Yes, it's, there's been an explosion of technologies available, and it's very, very exciting. There's also a lot of work being done in the field of genetics. There's multiple genes that have been recognized associated with glaucoma, and we do some of that research here. It's been wonderful to have a lot of movement forward in the field of genetics and, and really uh, finding genes responsible for different forms of glaucoma. Well, with all the treatment options you now have available, when somebody is diagnosed with early glaucoma, does the disease still tend to progress despite treatment or can you basically arrest the progression? I know it's not curable, but can you um, pretty much assume that the patient's not going to progress? So the most people do very well. I'll start off by saying that most people, we can slow down the disease or even stop the disease in many instances. A small percentage of people go on maybe less than 10% to progress, and it's more difficult to control the glaucoma. So that's why early diagnosis, early treatment is really critical to you know minimizing the impact of this disease on someone's sight. But most people do well if treated early. Mm -hmm. So patients that we see and have a diagnosis of glaucoma, how often should we recommend that they be seen by an ophthalmologist? Is, is annually adequate? It's a great question. You know, if someone's a glaucoma suspect, then annually is likely fine. If someone has early glaucoma, we may see them every six months. And for people who have more advanced glaucoma or require surgical management, we'll see them more often, maybe every three to four months. So it really depends upon the patient, their age, the severity of the glaucoma, and so on. Okay. 
Well, sure. You've given us some really interesting information. I wonder if you could summarize our discussion, maybe two or three key points to summarize our discussion on glaucoma. Absolutely. So to summarize, glaucoma is a very common disease. It's important to think of the different forms of glaucoma, including acute angle closure. And if they have a headache or eye pain, that's important to act on that and have them evaluated. It's important to encourage the patients, especially with risk factors for glaucoma, to get that baseline eye exam. And then once a patient is diagnosed and treated, you know, it's important to encourage them to use the eye drops. Of course, it's difficult for any patient to use chronic medications and, and glaucoma is really not different from any other disease. So that, that adherence to medication is very important to reiterate that to the patient. Well, we've been discussing glaucoma with Dr. Cheryl Kana, an ophthalmologic surgeon from the Mayo Clinic. Cheryl, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This has uh, been a fantastic interview. Thank you so much for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.